Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hi, I'm Stuart Bryant. I'm one of the hosts of the Inside the Boards podcast, and I'm here today to kind of meet and greet with one of our new co-hosts coming onto the show. So tell me a little bit about yourself. All right. Hi, my name is Sarah Romani. I am now a fourth year medical student at California North State University College of Medicine. I was born and raised in California, specifically San Francisco. I am a yogi and a Muay Thai as well as a basketball enthusiast. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and I am looking to hopefully match into either I'm dual applying actually. So I'm looking to either match into general surgery or anesthesia this coming fall. Okay. Um, so not committed one way or the other yet. That's not good. Yet, no. Yeah. Okay. So I take it that means that you're a rising fourth year or current fourth year now. That is correct. Correct. Okay, cool. How did you decide on a an OR specialty? I won't say a surgical because you haven't made that choice. <laughs> you know, like uh, just going into the OR, I don't know. I have like this feeling of belonging. It's kind of strange. Um, it just feels like the right place to be. I just enjoy the OR. I don't know. It just fits my personality, the vibe, the environment, Yeah, working it- with others. It's fun. It's uh, very ritualistic and it, it's a good yeah. experience. So if you if you enjoy it and you know it's what you want to do, and a good friend of mine, he was considering emergency medicine because it's you know also kind of uh, you know urgent care and trauma, and he was between that and general. And I think he had done a bunch of rotations outside of the OR where he wasn't going in and doing operations, and then he just did an elective and went in for a couple cases and was like, oh my gosh, this this seals it because he he realized like he he wanted that aspect and he hadn't been in the OR in a while and he really enjoyed being there. And that was something that he wanted in his practice for sure. So, you know, that's a good place to like, if you know that that's a place you want to be, then one of those specialties, one of the surgical specialties or anesthesia or anything that can kind of get you involved is, you know, ideal, right? Exactly. So you grew up in San Francisco. So I just moved to San Francisco. So where where should I go hiking? Let's see. So hiking, I would recommend go to Berkeley. There's several spots out there. Sure. Also in Oakland, there's a ton. But yeah, I grew up it, actually off of Market Street. Um, oh, and wow. then we moved to the East Bay. And so, yeah. So yeah, I'm actually working in uh, Union Square right downtown or right kind of over by there as well. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's right in the heart of it. Yeah. You know, that would have been fun to be there, uh, not during the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, sure, (laughs) sure. So tell me a little bit, how is, um, how has the pandemic kind of really affected your coming year? Yeah, it's really been difficult because now our aways are mainly, you know, not not really aways. They're a part of our home institutions. So for us, because I'm actually from a, a newer school, you know, California North State College of Medicine, they're pretty new. So we are kind of, you know, working it out with 
certain areas like UC Davis, they're accommodating us and Kaiser and Sutter's. But it's been really difficult because a lot of students that are applying for emergency medicine don't really have that opportunity to, you know, go on a ways. And also those of us that are interested in a surgical specialty, like, can't really go anywhere. So we got to work with what we have at our school. Like, we have contracts with, like I said, Kaiser and Sutter. So I am doing my sub-I in trauma surgery in critical care in Sutter. So it's interesting, but, you know, you got to work with what you have, and that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, and I, I mean, not to, you know, it's obviously a pretty, it's easy to get depressed about the whole situation, and I think the important thing to know is that this is where everyone is, and we're all kind of experiencing it for the first time, and no one really knows where we're going to go from here. So I, I, I totally appreciate that that uncertainty can create a lot of anxiety, particularly for these more high caliber competitive specialties where it's really up to who you know and where you rotated and how you've made those connections during your fourth year. But, you know, at the same time, the ability for you to kind of reach out to other programs and try to get involved just kind of over the internet is uh, also out there. And a lot of those programs, particularly in orthopedics, for instance, are you know really trying to cater to those individuals and offer you know online courses or ways to get in touch with residents. And I think that's really an important aspect of how this year is going to work out in terms of applying. So Good luck. I, I know that that's, you know, <laughs> obviously a tough situation to be in, but yeah, you'll make the best of it, I'm sure. Trying to. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what got you interested in podcasting? Yeah. So interesting enough, I actually write and I write poetry and also just journal articles. So I got interested in podcasting when I was listening a ton. And when I say a ton, like, pretty much every day to ITV. I started listening last, no, not last year, two years ago. So I got interested when, I don't know, it just sparked me when the pandemic hit and I got into contact with Dr. O'Connell and I was like, hey, you know, first off, I would like if you could possibly talk with a bunch of students about just the pandemic, how students can help and what our role is during the pandemic. And then I got more interested when I heard about, you know, opportunities for students to podcast. I was like, ah, you know, I I was initially interested in making my own podcast. So Dr. O'Connell was like, hey, you know, this is your opportunity to like intern here, you know, and get an idea of how podcasts work. So yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you reached out to Ted and got in touch with us. And, you know, obviously right now is a, a great time where we're all kind of working from home and, well, some of us are working from home and, you know, you have the opportunity to really get there and sit down at your computer and record for an hour and talk with people online. And I mean, that's basically what a lot of meetings are like these days anyway. So it's really not a whole lot different. We're just kind of keeping a recording going in the background. So it can be pretty natural too. People are getting a lot more used to it. So it, it's a good place to be. And you know, I'm glad you got an interest in it. And 
you know, I would encourage any listener that is, you know, really interested in audio and uh, medical education, like that this is a good route. And at Inside the Boards, we're really interested in, you know, kind of bringing everybody under like a, a collaborative and, you know, being able to be a resource for everyone to get in contact and work with us rather than having to figure out each little step on their own. So, you know, I'm glad you got involved and I would encourage anyone to get involved if that's something that they're interested in doing, similar to yourself. So I guess we should go through a little bit of medical education to kind of round things out and talk a little bit about some questions. Absolutely. So do you want me to start it off? Yeah, sure. I'm going to do these blind. I'm actually preparing for step three. So depending on where the content is, we'll see where, where my head's at. And you can uh, ridicule me if I miss it on an international podcast. Oh, dear. Do you want me to send it to you? No, no. No, let's go for it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start off with the question first. So the single. Sure. The, inter- the, the interrogative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what is the best next step to confirm the most likely diagnosis? Okay. So now we'll go ahead and dive into the actual question stem. A 33-year-old male presents to the ED with severe pain radiating from his left flank to his groin. The pain is colicky in nature. On exam, the patient appears to be in acute distress. He's tachycardic, diaphoretic, and has left CVA tenderness. UA shows greater than 180 red blood cells and three plus blood. So again, the question is, what is the best next step to confirm the most likely diagnosis? A. Plane abdominal x-ray. B. IV pilogram. C. Non-contrast CT of the abdomen and pelvis. And then D. Cystoscopy. So I'll give you a moment. Okay. Just to confirm, it was an x-ray, a CT, a cystoscopy, and what was the second option? Intravenous pilogram. A pilogram. Okay, and we have a 33-year-old male who has hematuria and left radiating flank pain, right? So, and a 33-year-old male, the first thing that you should be thinking of really is going to be a a kidney stone uh, that's going to be causing some sort of blockage or scarring that's led to bleeding uh, from an injury there. There are two ways that you can really diagnose a kidney stone, then I'll get into that. The other thing, then we can kind of think about more like zebras that could be causing a lot of blood in the urine, right? So he has three plus blood. So he's got a lot of blood. He's not microhematuria, right? So other reasons that he could be bleeding, he could be bleeding from a lesion in his bladder, which you would typically think of as something like cancer, particularly like a smoker, right? That would be in an older male. So we can kind of rule that out. He also hasn't had like weight loss or anything like that. Did you say he had a fever? So he is tachycardic, diaphoretic, and has left CVA tenderness. I did not mention a fever. So he's tachycardic and diaphoretic. What does that kind of make you think of? He's in severe pain. 
Right, right. So pain can lead to tachycardia, right? Diaphoretic sweating from the pain to sympathetic activation, right? The other thought you could be thinking is infectious. And then, you know, if say this patient was taking a lot of NSAIDs or, you know, maybe they have something more rheumatologic in nature that's affecting their kidneys that could be leading to them to have a lot of bleeding from the kidneys. So you could think of like uh, if they had been in shock, they might have blood in the urine from like interstitial necrosis or acute tubular necrosis. And then you could think of like a sickle cell patient or someone who's used chronic NSAIDs with like sloughing of the renal papules, having a lot of bleeding as well. But all of that to say, those are all rare birds. And I'm really interested in this patient having a kidney stone. I mentioned that there are two ways that you can think about diagnosing a kidney stone. One of them is an answer. One of them's not the answer. Can you think of the one that's not the answer? Ultrasound. Right. So an ultrasound could be an easy step to diagnose a kidney stone. Interestingly, that's not what you see happen in most emergency departments. And there are a couple reasons. First, it's provider dependent. So there's a chance of missing a kidney stone on ultrasound. Second, there's a time factor, and it's actually really easy to put someone in a CT machine and scan them and find it with a non-contrast CT, which was, I think, the third answer choice, and that's the one I would have picked. If it's a really bad kidney stone and it's calcific, you may even be able to see it on unless just an abdominal film, too. But that's like a severe kidney stone and not what we're probably looking at here. So tell me about the explanation. What's the answer here? Yeah, so great job. That's actually really good. So it's C, non-contrast CT of abdomen and pelvis. So basically, to discuss each answer choice, so the x-rays are not really reliable. They could miss a diagnosis of kidney stones. That's why non-con CT of abdomen and pelvis is more of the gold standard. So x-rays, they can either find some stones, but not necessarily all stones. They miss smaller stones, and they can also miss the radio-opaque stones. And some of the stones are radiolucent, and those would not appear on the x-ray. So that's why you would exclude x-ray from this answer choice. Mm -hmm. The IV uh, pilogram, or intravenous pilogram, so although that could actually visualize the renal stones and the degree of obstruction, so we're talking about hydroureters or hydronephrosis, it's less sensitive in comparison to the CT, and it actually requires a substantial amount of radiation, which is unnecessary. Right. And then the, cyst the cystoscopy is used to really... Uh, visualize the entire bladder for any pathological findings, like you were talking about, you know, bladder cancer. It's great for that. Um, it's not really used for uh, your typical nephrolithiasis or, as we say, kidney stones. So, yeah, non-contrast CT is the gold standard. And specifically, the non-contrast study is used for the purpose of visualizing the stones, making it bright white. And it's rapidly performed and widely available. Just a point, this patient already had a UA, so you would want to start off with a UA to assess for any blood in the urine. 
any absence of blood in the urine could mean that there may potentially not be a stone. And as we spoke uh, about it earlier, alternatively, you can use a renal ultrasound to evaluate uh, for hydronephrosis or hydroureters in both pregnant women and children. Yeah, no, that, that's a, a, a good option. And particularly pregnant or children are going to be kind of lead you that direction. Still kind of in an ED, like the gold standard is going to be CT just because it's fast and reliable. You know, I, I think I've gotten you world questions that answer it both ways where they say in this situation or, a, you know, a CT is next or a ultrasound is next. And I, I, you know, the nuance there is kind of a, a coin flip right now. The other thing I was thinking about uh, with like a lot of blood in the urine was hemorrhagic cystitis. And I was just like double checking what the, the medication was. But if they were a rheumatologic patient and they had a lot of blood without the groin pain necessarily, you could think of like a cyclophosphamide adverse event or other medications that could cause that. I think I've had this question from a step three level. And, you know, while CT is a, a good option and you should get a UA before you do it. If you have enough the clinical suspicion, you can jump right to it. But that's once your clinical judgment is high enough to have that. So patient with groin pain and hematuria without a UA doesn't necessarily need to have that done. But again, don't worry about that nuance for the earlier steps. All right. Yeah. Anything else we could butcher about that question? Not really. Let's move on to the next one then. Okay. So the question is, in addition to IV fluids and analgesics, which of the following treatments is recommended for this patient? So oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so the whole question is done. A 17-year-old male presents with a complaint of intermittent burning micturation and bilateral lumbar pain radiating to the groin. UA shows trace blood on his urine dipstick test, but negative for leukocytes and nitrates. And there is a presence of calcium crystals on microscopic analysis. A 24-hour urine calcium level was noted to be more than 250 milligrams per liter. Lab reports revealed a serum calcium level of 10.2 milligrams per deciliter. Flat plate abdominal x-ray showed radio-opaque densities in both kidneys. In addition to IV fluids and analgesics, which of the following is recommended for this patient? Now, I'll go through the answer choices. A. Lendronate. B. Hydrochlorothiazide. C. Allopurinol. D. Denusumab. Man, none of those were what I was expecting. Okay. So, alendronate, allopurinol, denosumab, and what was the, the fourth one? Hydrochlorothiazide. All right, hydrochlorothiazide. Okay. So, he has what sounds like symptomatic uh, calciuria. So, he's got calcium formations in his urine and ureters leading to stones and pain. So, why we're going to give him pain medication and fluids, obviously. I guess, why is that obvious? Is it obvious? <laughs> I, I would hope 
it's obvious. You yeah. definitely want to give IV fluids and analgesics because it's painful and you want the stone to pass. Right. So we want to so we want to help stones pass. And if you think about it, so what's happened is they have precipitated, really. So, it, you know, this is a solution and the calcium is precipitated out. We want to help provide enough fluid to undo that process or help, you know, at least push it through. So whichever comes first, really. Hydrating the patient will have force their you know, kidneys to produce more urine, which could help, if not dissolve, at least help pass. Other things we're going to be considering to do is trying to decrease the amount of calcium that is going into their urine, right? So calcium goes into urine in a couple of parts of the kidney, in the immediate filtrate, and then in the uh, distal tubules, correct? So the thing about the distal tubules is they're actually one of the acting sites for hydrochlorothiazide that prevents sodium resorption and increases calcium resorption because that's like a co-transporter dependent reaction. So by doing that, you're going to absorb more calcium to help clear the calcium from the urine, which might help. The other things is trying to lower the calcium in the blood. So I would say we're not going to use a couple of these medications because they're more about mobilizing calcium and, you know, helping with bone formation and less about how much calcium is related to the urine. The only one that I'm not positive about, it would be allopurinol, right? So that's like, obviously, that's the treatment for gout and it's a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, I believe, if I recall from step one. I don't know if that would have any effect on the pH of the urine, which could potentially help, but it's not really important because you don't, you don't need to make that gander. I can tell you because of the, the fact that the diuretic, I guess, secondary effect of hydrochlorothiazide is that it's going to help you resorb calcium is going to lead you to the right answer. But I just, I'm not totally satisfied with it. I really wanted something that changed the pH of the urine to kind of help dissolve the uh the calcium crystals but that's my best answer so that's the one i'm going with okay <laughs> how how far off are we or no that's I? that's perfect yeah uh you explained it really well so yeah the thiazides act on the distal convoluted tubule and we know that it's a sodium chloride co-transporter and it effectively increases the serum of calcium. So that results in hypocalciuria, which prevents the precipitation of the calcium oxalate stones. Awesome. Yeah. Do you know how much calcium is typically dumped into the urine every day? Yeah. So it depends on dietary factors. But a normal range for adults is about, I believe, 100 to 250. Right. And then 300 kind of being your upper limit of normal. And then there's one condition where they may have a high blood calcium, but a low urinary calcium. Do you know which one that is? Yeah, I think that's... Familial hypercalcemia, hypercalciuria. <laughs> yes. It's a good distractor for your like parathyroid calcium questions. So it, when you've got a patient who has a high calcium level 
and a high parathyroid hormone. And they give you a urine calcium. And the only thing, like the urine calcium is normal or low. You're thinking like, well, why aren't they spilling out more calcium? And that's just a, a familial trait or part of that syndrome that they've got where they don't excrete as much calcium. That's why it's so much higher, even though they, by all means of that feedback loop, it should have gone down and it should be excreting more. It's a good distractor from a question that you're like, oh, this must be primary hyperparathyroidism. But that's a good way to get you caught on a test question. Maybe in real life too. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of parathyroid patients. Yeah. So otherwise, the other medications were denosumab, which is going to, I think it's like a, a rank inhibitor, which causes decreased like osteoclastic activity to help prevent bone resorption. And then alendronate, right, is also going to be a, is a bisphosphonate, which is actually a cytotoxic medication for osteoclast, right, to help reduce calcium resorption. And one really bad complication of long-term alendronate use, do you know that? There are yeah. two things actually I can think of, but yeah. So, wow, you're you're really good on these medications. So you explained it really well. Uh, yeah, so alendronate, uh, bisphosphonates are typically like their adverse effects of chronically using it is esophagitis and also osteonecrosis of the jaw. Yeah, that's one. That's the one I was thinking of. The then I was like, oh, there are two. The other thing I thought of, which is actually rarer, but it's uh, more orthopedic in nature. It's, it's a, called like a chalk stick fracture, which are these like very transverse fractures. They're almost like perfect with the bone. And it's just because even though like long-term use of the medication helps restore bone over time, that it's still weaker and it can have these like perfect breaks and they're called chalk stick fractures. I, I'd had to look up more about it to to really talk about them more, but it's one of those things I remember seeing. I should know that if I'm doing orthopedics. So that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll look into. I'll look into that for my own knowledge, but I don't think it's going to be too important for step two, which is where I think a question like this would come up. Yeah, that's uh, all the things I could think of from there. But and then denosumab, right? That's an antibody. Right, that's a monoclonal antibody um, against the Ringel, like you mm -hmm. uh, mentioned. Right, so that would be a second line treatment. Uh, yes, first so the bisphosphonates, and and really bisphosphonates is a second line treatment for after vitamin D and calcium. Third line treatment. <laughs> Third line treatment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you think about it. So chalk stick fracture. Think osteo. Petrosis or Paget's disease, not bisphosphonate use, I think. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so those were good questions. I liked them. You had the urinary focus. You know, I, you know, obviously like renal is a good topic and great test fodder for the board exam. So there are a lot of ways to go with it. But I think the, the questions on like urine analysis and such are particularly high yield. So I like it. I like it a lot. I think 
The one thing I remember from my kidney stone lecture in medical school was our teacher walked around and was like, has anybody had a kidney stone? And then she walked up, like someone raised their hand that was willing to talk about it. And then she walked up to them and was like, I, so I hear it's more painful in, than childbirth. Can you tell me about it? <laughs> we just got up. Like everybody kind of laughed and the, the, the person was like, yeah, it was really painful, but I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't um, tell you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, cool. Very cool. So yeah, I think that's basically all we had to do. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me and kind of introducing yourself. And I'm looking forward to all the like, you know, great episodes and your, your high quality journalism combined with this audio outlet and see what we can make. Awesome. Okay. That's great, Stuart. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today. You've been listening to Inside the Boards, the best free audio resource for board prep and med school.